Hello everybody, Dr. F. Scott Feel here, and I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor. The NPTE Final Frontier is the review course that I wish was around when I took the board exam. For those of you who know my story, it took me a handful of times to pass that exam, and quite frankly, I really wish I had an, a, an exam review course around, uh, just like the NPTE Final Frontier. Uh, check out their website, NPTEFF.com, and use the code HET at checkout for 10% off to all of our listeners and fans. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things, though, that I've realized is to be in academia, to some extent, you're going to have to do research and you're going to have to publish, right? It's uh, kind of a cliche phrase, publish or perish, right? Uh, and while I, you know, I'm fortunate in the situation that I'm in that, you know, we're not an R1 research university. We're not, you know, being pushed to, to put out publications as, uh, regularly as somebody in an R1, uh, university might, I still have to do research. That's the, the bottom line. And so I'm, I'm reintroducing myself back into it little by little. Um, but you have already published a ton. You've, you know, you're doing your own research studies. You're coming up with them. How did, I mean, how did, you told us the, the, you know, the, the different ingredients that went into this to, to cook up that final product, right? But what keeps you doing that? What keeps you going in that direction? Why do you keep publishing and, and doing research studies and, and staying so interested in this stuff? What, what's the driving force there? Uh, well, number one, I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy the, the, the search for knowledge and understanding and ultimately application, because I believe deep down BFR is a tool that can change the lives of our patients given particular, you know, circumstances. And so I'm very passionate about spreading a technology that I truly believe in and is backed behind plenty of peer reviewed research. Um, my area, uh, and this is kind of where my other business, the BFR Pros fits in, is because I feel that BFR is something that can be practiced a lot of different ways given a minimal standard, which for me is the assessment of limb occlusion or arterial occlusion pressure, just basically personalizing the application pressure so we can maximize or at least theoretically maximize safety uh, for a variety of different people. Um, that's kind of uh, what's driving a lot of my interest in publishing is that right now in the field of blood flow restriction training, it's still, even though BFR has been around for 50 plus years and the first published research on ischemic strength training, I think actually was in the seventies, but really the first strength training paper was I think 1998 or 1999. So it's been around for at least in, in the published research for that long. Um, it's still relatively new and misunderstood by a lot of the scientists, I feel. And because it's so hot, people are just trying to get involved and publish on BFR without fully understanding the nuances of the different types of application. So my role, or what I've taken as my role, is, and what I'm so passionate about is, yes, do I believe that BFR um, can change lives? Yes. Do I believe that, um, that I, I feel that there are missing pieces in the literature? Absolutely. So my job is to look at the cumulative body of research and also in that, within that cumulative body of research, 
understand that as more and more devices are entering the marketplace for consumer purchase, there are a lot of marketing and, and not as much science attached to it. So I'm seeing that with the BFR pros, because I feel that we can, um, we can uh, uh, use a lot of different devices. Well, I want to help create research on those particular devices and their features such that we now have data that suggests, yes, they're, they're beneficial, or maybe there's other more safer applications that can be utilized to help with the widespread growth of blood flow restriction. Because right now, basically, if you look at the research, you can do anything you want. And BFR has been shown to be relatively you know, well tolerated and safe. But as BFR continues to enter more mainstream and there's, there's more people that are picking this up, more clinical populations that are using blood flow restriction training, well, we want to make sure that we're not putting the cart before the horse. And so a lot of the research that I'm interested in is a number one, how can we, how can we maximize safe application of blood flow restriction training? So I've been published in a couple of papers there. And then two different device characteristics, like I mentioned before, auto regulation and how does that actually maximize the safety of application or not? And different, different, um, uh, ways in which the device itself is manufactured. Like for example, um, there are, there's products out there that do that are designed not to occlude, even though the restriction itself likely accelerates the fatigue process. We don't have research that directly compares the two. So we're, um, so I'm involved in a couple of projects that are looking to, again, separate the marketing from the actual science, because I am, I am, uh, a scientist in that if the research uh, at large continues to support a certain way of applying blood flow restriction training, well, then that's the way that I'm going to be teaching and promoting it. Um, right now, we are decade plus away from that, um, just due to the, the speed of research and, and everything. But that's kind of where I found my passion. So when we're talking about all these different projects that I'm involved in, they're all directly related to clinical education. So how can we make BFR safer? What are the different factors that, be, that, that you must consider when you're trying to apply blood flow restriction training? And what kind of devices are potentially more beneficial for a particular type of population than others? So it's all like, this is all things that I'm seeing on the wall. And I'm like, wow, I'm just blessed to be in an opportunity to, to have a small opportunity to contribute to the literature at large and full well knowing that these papers that I'm going to be involved in are, are going to be one of the more pivotal types of papers in 10, 15, 20 years down the line, because it's not because I'm seeing it and I'm just doing something that's so amazing. It's just because I'm one of the first people to see the gaps in the research and how we can try to shore up those gaps. So I'm excited about a lot of the projects I'm in because a lot of them are going to be very impactful given, you know, time passing. So it's very motivating. So I know that like, I'm not going to be, I used to joke being like, oh, you know, I, if I, if I ever passed away um, before I published a paper, it was like, oh yeah, my memory kind of like is with my friends and family, whatever. But when you get published and your name is out in the ether, it's there forever. Um, so, so that was, you know, kind of the joke that I was having, you know, with myself where it's like now, at least, you know, my mark on blood flow restriction training, even though it's a very small mark. And I really do uh, believe that, you know, I am just playing a very small part 
in a much larger pie because um, I got to give credit to the researchers that came before me that are still doing a lot of the grunt work that are putting out those longitudinal papers, doing the things like those are the people that are really doing the heavy lifting. I'm just very fortunate enough to be in positions that I, you know, I don't have to be on the ground doing that particular research in order to, to, to move the industry forward. Yeah. Standing on the shoulders of giants, right? I mean, uh, that that's basically how, how we move things forward. You know, we, we, take all that hard work that they've done and we, we try to make it better. We try to push it forward. Uh, and I hope, I hope people are taking notes on this stuff here, because again, you, you brought up a lot of really good points here, you know, and, uh, one, um, I'm obviously, you know, blown away and amazed by the amount of, of research and publications that you've been able to do thus far, uh, not having a traditional, you know, start in research, right? But also you brought up a really good point of like, hey, there's been a ton of international collaborations because, you know, some of them needed help as English as a second language type thing, right? And so that's a huge tip right there, right? If people want to get involved in research, maybe start looking internationally, you know, look for people who are doing things you're doing in other countries and see if you can uh, help with that, you know, see if you can help, uh, you know, tighten up some of the manuscript or whatever, right? So, I mean, that's, that's a big pointer right there. And, I, and it's crazy, but it, it establishes expertise and authority almost instantly because now you're international, literally, you know? Um, so again, uh, you know, I commend you on the hard work and, and, and all that you've done thus far. But, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about BFR pros now. Like that's obviously been one of your driving factors you know it's it's been one of the things and i love the fact too that you know you're kind of taking that non-biased approach with bfr pros and looking at the research for the benefits or lack thereof right i uh when i had graduated from undergrad a couple of years after that there was a study done by virginia tech at wake forest my alma mater that uh looked at uh concussions with a certain helmet a football helmet and uh they found that this one helmet prevented concussions I don't know, 8% less than all the rest or something like that. Um, and you're like, oh, cool. All right. Well, maybe that's the helmet to go with. And then you look a little further and you do a little deeper dive. And it turns out that I think it was, uh, I don't want to say the company because I don't remember it, but whatever company it was that made the helmet was the one that paid for the study, right? So when you start getting into those biases, you're like, all right, well, of course your helmet performed better because you, you know, you paid for the study and maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but that's the biases we have to try to remove when we're doing real good research, you know? So it seems like you're able to do that. And that's kind of the, the sticking point for BFR pros is that, Hey, we're going to look at this stuff non-biased and we're just going to put out the best research we can moving forward. If we're going to try to move BFR and blood flow restriction stuff forward, that's how we have to approach it. So tell us a little bit about BFR pros and what you're doing with that. Yeah, I think first and foremost, you know, it's, it, you know, people are always saying, oh yeah, I have a financial incentive because I have the BFR pros. And it's like, well, you know, obviously there is some financial incentive when you're talking about a business, but my business is BFR training education. So it's not, I'm not selling any devices. Um, you know, in fact, if you go and you take any of my products, you'll get discounts to, to other devices, but I don't take any commissions off that. The BFR pros doesn't take any commissions. Why? Because we want to present the information to you and you as the clinician or the fitness professional or the fitness enthusiast can make the decision based on your needs. Um, and so that's where, you know, it's, it's like, oh, people are like, yeah, you're incentivized. I'm like, no, if BFR doesn't work, it doesn't work. Right. 
And then my, my job is to be what could have gone wrong in that particular study, given what we know about blood force exchange, what could have been the factors that could have produced that result? And that should be happening with science across the board. It just so happens that BFR looks to work with a variety of different protocols and application methods beyond low intensity training itself, or even approaching or exceeding in certain capacities, high intensity strength training. So it's not like I, you know, I am, I am merely just somebody who is trying to like the personal trainer to stay in shape for their clients. I am trying to do the same thing for anybody who is looking to learn about blood flow restriction training by putting my money where my mouth is or my time where my mouth is, which really it's a lot of time when you're doing research, because I want to make sure that I am, I am contributing to the field at large and helping with understanding the field at large. And again, I've had this discussion with other people where if we start to determine that the use of auto-regulation, for example, where the cuff inflates and deflates according to the contraction, uh, contraction uh, period, if auto-regulation has starts to show that it is significantly safer than non-auto-regulated application, well, then I'm going to start to teach according to that. And I don't, I'm not married to any particular way to do blood flow restriction training. So any education, which is the product, right? Any education that you're going to be getting from us is not going to be anchored to, you need to buy a particular cuff because we don't make any commissions on that. So yes, there is a potential conflict of interest. And yes, I'm interested in blood flow restriction training and I do courses on that, but nothing that comes out of the research is going to, you know, influence me one way or another. It's just going to further shape the direction of education that I'm going to be providing for any of the coursework. So that is, you know, and, and I don't have any problems with, and I really do try, like if I'm in a paper that, um, you know, certainly I'm a first or second author, I will of course disclose the BFR, you know, education, but more times than not, I do disclose because I want people to know that, listen, like, I, I mean, there is a second business for this, but at the end of the day, it's in the best interest of, of the patients and the, and the providers and everybody else that's working on it. Um, because we're not really just a BFR education company in, in, in that. We also are looking to push blood flow restriction training forward in general. We have launched an unbiased directory <clears throat> called BFRproviders.com. So if you're listening and you got certified uh, by any organization, not just the BFR pros, we want to make sure that if, as physicians are, are referring their patients to, uh, to blood flow restriction training, that they're actually going to somebody who has had some formal post-professional education in blood flow restriction training. So you have to upload your certification before you ever, ever get listed in this database. But we're trying to grow BFR as safely as we possibly can. And that's why it is unbiased in that regard. And we're soon to be launching bloodflowrestriction.com which is going to be a hub for all things blood flow restriction training. We're going to start out with online education and cuff sales. But again, it's up to the person to be able to decide what cuff they want. We're not going to push sales one way or another. This is to, again, make BFR more accessible to the general population and the rehab population. We're going to start posting about courses, not just the BFR pros, but all courses that are getting offered. Because at the end of the day, I believe in the technology. I want it to grow. If they choose to be, be educated by the BFR pros, that's great. That's an honor that I take very seriously. And I poured a ton of time into 
present presenting into doing the things that you know establish expertise in the area but ultimately as long as bfr continues to grow continues to reach mainstream that is success in the eyes of the bfr pros um so that's kind of you know where where the bfr pros is at is just we want to grow bfr and so what do we do with that well we we provide unbiased bfr education that relays the science and makes the consumer the the give give the choice of what device they want to purchase based on their needs so all of our products are um are designed like that is to relay the science and not put a an excessive spin on one particular feature or another because right now the evidence doesn't have that but that doesn't mean that in five years from now if more research comes out supporting a particular methodology that we would not pivot much like dr schoenfeld has pivoted a little bit on his three determinants of hypertrophy, mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And now he's more leaning toward mechanical tension as the primary driver, right? Because more evidence has come out to support it. That is what a true academician does and is unbiased in that regard. We follow the evidence. And I am more than pleased to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, what we're seeing is like, hey, it's okay to say, I'm coming from a better, more well-informed place now. And so this is what, you know, I believe based on more research that's come out, you know, more studies, more recent stuff. So I don't, I don't see a problem with that at all. And I think, you know, from, from a bigger picture standpoint, it's like, Hey, I'm in the weeds. I'm in the thick of it, doing the research. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what, what is best practice. And so the only thing that changes is if we find research that supports one thing or another. That's what we teach them. We teach the most, you know, best, most well-informed educational stuff that we can so that you can then go out and make the best, most well-informed decisions for you and your patients. You know, it, it, like you said, it doesn't have anything to do per se with, what, you know, what, which product you're buying or, or whatever. It's just, hey, man, here's the best research. We're teaching it. It's literally up to the minute because you're the guy putting it out there. So, you know, you know, so, that, you know, again, I appreciate the, the work and the effort that goes into it. Um, Nick, we ask every guest one final question. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? Why would you change it? And how would you change it? Huh. Um, loaded, loaded question. Yeah, man. That's that's why we ask it. I, I think because I, I look... I look at the requirements for tenureship for a lot of it, and you need a terminal academic degree. But unfortunately, what that does is it, it increases the likelihood that there's going to be a dissociation between academia and clinical practice. So I think that, and again, I'm not super, super well-versed because I'm not at that point in my career right now, but I'm looking for that. But from what I understand, making arbitrary requirements like that, um, you know, it's tough because you have clinicians that are actually enacting the research and you have researchers that are actually doing the research. And sometimes, sometimes they're one and the same, but more times than not, they're not. And so you get this disconnect between what people are researching and what's actually being done in practice. And that doesn't help any new uh, physical therapist that's coming through DPT education or any other students that are going through a PhD master's program that are, you know, not like it, it's, it's, like, it's almost like you're a fitness professional, but then you stop training people, but then you're teaching other people how to, you know, how to train people. 
and you haven't had on the on the ground experience in over a decade. So it's like, you know, it's tough from from that regard. So I think in an ideal world, you know, you're 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 better able to secure long term faculty by creating this, you know, reducing that requirement for an absolute academic degree and valuing clinical experience and expertise, particularly when you're in a clinical field. Like you don't need to get a PhD to be able to teach. Like I'm teaching physical therapists across, you know, the United States and Europe without a PhD, but, you know, I understand why you would want to go into it in, into that. But I've also done a lot of the, you know, things that I'm going to be getting myself into as a student proper in a PhD program in terms of publishing and things like there might be a legitimate possibility. I might have 30 plus publications before I start my PhD program. Um, so, you know, for me to go through a PhD program is more because I need that credential in order to get to stay and find a tenureship position in academia versus I really just want to give up my clinical practice or a majority of my clinical practice so I can go and do, you know, research where I can do both right now. So yeah. that's, that's, that's kind of my initial thoughts based on that prompt. That's a great answer and a lot to unpack there because one, there is a separation between the tower, the ivory tower of academia and clinical world, right? And that's part of the reason this, this podcast was formed, right? To kind of start bridging that gap and making it, you know, smaller. But again, we, we, we got to the point where we have a clinical doctorate in physical therapy, but we need still a terminal to dash. Yeah. Like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So now fast forward to my position, right? Uh, we don't have tenure at our, at our school, but we have a, like a promotion track, right? And I could have probably gotten the position that I, I got without the EDD had I had a board certified specialty, like a, a GCS or whatever, and my DPT, right? Well, okay, if that's the case, then, you know, it, it, it's even harder to justify a PhD or an EDD when a PhD might know how to do great research and one particular niche or niche, whatever you want to call it. I have that debate all the time too <laughs> on, on their thing. Right. And they're really good at it, but I have an EDD. So I learned a little bit more about the theory of teaching and learning. Right. So I actually know more how to teach than how to do research, you know, so again, a little bit of a separation there. And it's like, I, I've met PhDs who had no idea how to teach. Like they weren't great teachers because nobody ever taught them how to teach, how to transfer the knowledge, right? But they're amazing clinicians and, and great researchers, you know? And, and you bring up another good point too. It's like, I don't necessarily want to give up my practice, right? I, I like having one foot in the boat of clinical law at all times. Plus you can pull people from your practice for research at times, you know, so it's good to have. Uh, but I still maintain my, my mobile PT practice uh, just so I, I still have my hands, you know, on people and I'm still like crafting my skill. But I had 15, 16 years of clinical practice before I went into academia, mostly with geriatrics, right? That was kind of my bread and butter. Sniffs, home health, uh, acute care, a lot of outpatient, um, but home health, I, I, I did it all, right? I traveled for a while. So over those 16 years, luckily the, the positions that they needed me to teach were exactly 
what I ha- had, you know, done for the last 16 years. It was geriatrics. It was patient care one and two, which is transfers and bed mobility and tubes and lines and assistive devices, and gate training, stuff like that. All stuff that, again, I've been doing for 15, 16 years. So had I not had the EDD, I still think I might've been okay had I had a board certified specialty. I don't, I'm working toward that, but it's like, why do I need that now? I've got the EDD. And again, like you said, it seems like there's these, you know, the, these benchmarks and these little, you know, check boxes that we need to hit that are so arbitrary. I think we need to figure that out, man, especially over the next couple of years, if there's going to be a mass exodus, people retiring who've been teaching for many, many years and are ready to leave the profession. So it's a tough spot, man, but I like, I like the answer. I like uh, the direction you're heading. You know, I think it'll be uh, good for you and good for your students. Um, you know, Nick, where can people reach out to you if they want to ask more questions or follow up uh, or, or just see what you're up to these days on social media and the interwebs? Yeah, if anybody uh, is interested in following me and hearing my thoughts on not only blood flow restriction training, but strength and conditioning, fitness, just statistics, important things to consider, um, they can follow my Instagram account at the HPM, just short for the human performance mechanic. Or go to www.thehpmny.com or www.bfrtraining.com if they're interested in learning uh, about the coursework that we have. We have three different products um, that are out um, that can be purchased and all have CEUs affiliated with them. Um, But yeah, I mean, listen, it's, I'm just very fortunate that I love what I do. Um, Every day is different. Um, some days I'm writing a paper in the morning, treating patients in the afternoon, and then teaching students, at, you know, in the evening, um, it's, it, it just completely varies and it just allows me to stay fresh in all different domains. Um, and that's what I really love about it. Um, is, is just, I'm able to hopefully make a small difference in the lives of my patients, but also in the lives of the patients of the physical therapists and other people that I'm training to help with, you know, integrating blood flow restriction training into their plan of care. Yeah. Bigger impact, right? Instead of one-on-one care, now it's one-to-many because you're affecting so many other clinicians and then their patients. So, well, we'll put those links in the show notes so it's easy for everyone to find you. Nick, thanks again so much for your time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Glad I can hop on. Thanks for the invite.